Welcome back to Expert Instruction, the Teach by Design podcast, where we dive deeper into the research surrounding student behavior by talking with the people implementing these practices, where they work, and with the students they support. I'm Megan Cave. I'm Danielle Triplett. Good morning, Danielle. Welcome back from winter break, everybody. We seem to have reached the point in the winter where we leave for work in the dark and we get home in the dark. There's like zero sunshine in between. (laughs) And out here in Oregon, we've got rain. Boy, do we. Last week was wild. It was like torrential downpour, then hot and humid, and then like more torrential (laughs) downpour. And it continues today. So much rain. It's a real party, actually. Uh, So we do what we can, you know, to liven things up a little bit while we're here at work. Hopefully, every one of you has had a chance to check out our annual list of favorite things. If you haven't, you really should. It's over in our Teach by Design spot on our website. Check it out. Uh, it's a good list and the videos seem to just get cheesier and cheesier every year. Danielle, you even showed up in one of those videos this year. It was so good to have you. I did. I loved it. It was so fun. So yeah, today we're also here continuing our Mythbuster series. And today's episode is part two of our conversation with Dr. Kent McIntosh. Back in November, we busted the myth that PBIS is just about rewards and tokens. We talked about how acknowledgements are one strategy we have for responding to the behaviors we want to see in our school. And today we're tackling the other side of the response to the behavior coin, so the consequences for those behaviors we don't want to see. And specifically, we're addressing the myth that there are no consequences in PBIS. Gosh, I've heard that one a lot. There's just nothing. We don't do anything. Right. You just reward them, give them iPads, all that fun stuff, right? Yeah, exactly. So Kent is back with us today. We're so happy to have him to address this myth head on. To refresh your memory, Kent is the Philip H. Knight Chair of Special Education at the University of Oregon, and he's our director here at PBIS Apps. He's also the co-director of the Center on Positive Behavior Supports and Interventions and Supports, excuse me. His current research focuses on increasing racial equity in school discipline and the sustainability of systems for social, emotional, and behavior support in schools. We're so lucky to have Kent back for part two. And during our conversation, there were quite a few things that stood out to us. One of those is that a referral isn't the consequence. He reminded us that this is documentation of what happened, and that includes our response to the behavior. We talk through the types of consequences that we deliver in schools and analyze those. We really honed in on how our options for consequences need to be instructional whenever possible, and that removing students from instruction shouldn't even be option B, C, or even D. It was fun, too, because we even learned a little more about our fearless leader and the kind of student he was when he was a kid. He wasn't as squeaky clean as we might have thought him to be. I was surprised with what he shared. So listen in. Hey, Kent, you're back. Thanks for joining us again for part two of our conversation. Um, Let's see. So we talked about um, acknowledgments and now we're talking about consequences. And today's myth specifically that we want to address is that there are no consequences in PBIS. It's something that we hear quite a bit um, as a criticism of the framework. So we wanted to take some time to talk to you about that. So first of all, let's just kind of talk a little bit about where we think the this idea comes from, that 
within PBIS, there are no consequences. Where do you yeah. think it comes from? Well, first, I'm happy to be back and here and uh, that you actually had me back, which is a nice consequence. <laughs> um, you know, sometimes people, when they think about consequences, they, they're really talking about one kind. They're thinking about what the teacher does to respond to the behavior that they don't want to see in the classroom. Uh, and so the world is full of consequences all around us, natural consequences, positive consequences. Uh, I might, if I'm really mean to somebody uh, in the hallway, then they're not going to want to interact with me later. And that is a that is a consequence as well. Sure. Um, so I, I think you can't really say there are no consequences because there is uh, there are always consequences around. But it is what are the adults doing, I think, to to try to uh, prevent, stop uh, and interrupt that unwanted behavior that we're thinking of. That's right. Yeah. For me, I think um, something that comes up, I wonder about is if there's a lack of communication um, about what happened, you know, that maybe I observed a behavior and I sent a student to the office and to have to figure out for them to figure out what to what to happen. And then that student comes back to my room and I I never know. <laughs> what was said. I don't know if there was a phone call home, if there was a decision for some something to happen in that office. All I know is that a student left my room and then they returned and that's it. I don't know more. So it can feel like, and it's very possible that that behavior continues to happen mm -hmm. either in my classroom that day or at least tomorrow or something, you know? And so it feels like this behavior happens a lot I often send them to someone and they come back and I never know what happened. But all I do know is that behavior continues to happen in my classroom. So it can feel like there aren't any consequences. How annoying. Maybe. How annoying, right? It How annoying. terrible. <laughs> but it's actually really useful. You know, I was, I was nerding out on uh, the definition of consequence and the consequence of sending a student to the office. We might think of that as a negative consequence, but for some students to get out of an uncomfortable situation, to maybe maybe sneakily get out of having to uh, read aloud in front of their peers, um, right? That in of itself, like that's a consequence, and so that's something that might be worth. There, there might be a payoff for the student, and unfortunately for the teacher, that outweighs any negative parts of it. Mm -hmm. uh, but, you know, I always think about this idea of like, we always want to feel like we've got influence over students' behavior in our classrooms. And there are some times when we don't, and it's a challenge and it becomes really difficult. Um, some of the best teams that I've worked with and some of the best educators and administrators I've worked with, they really say, okay, if you're having challenges with a student, yes, send them to me, uh, meaning me, the administrator, but what you're doing is you're you're uh, implicitly or maybe even explicitly acknowledging, I don't have control over this situation and I mm. need to hand it off to somebody else to deal with it. Mm -hmm. And when I do that, uh, you know, hopefully we have this sort of uh, not even unspoken, but actually spoken agreement. If I don't know what to do with that student and I don't know how to change their behavior and I'm giving uh, giving my authority to somebody else to do that, 
then I, as the teacher, I have to be okay with whatever that judgment of that administrator mm -hmm. is. And so sometimes that means a little cooling off, right? Sometimes mm -hmm. that means uh, some intervention uh, or a, a refocused conversation that I wasn't aware of because I'm teaching all day and all of a sudden the student comes back. Uh, so sometimes the things are there that are a little bit invisible, but sometimes it's just that change of location, the opportunity for a, a, a student to regather their emotions and mm -hmm. uh, kind of regulate a little bit better. And then, you know, I think one of the things that's somewhat frustrating for administrators is there's a lot of emotion when a student gets sent to the office. But even in the process of a student actually like physically, like motor wise, getting up and leaving and like moving their body uh, over to the uh, uh, up to the office and thinking about it a little bit that in of itself sometimes a student says wow you know I I I shouldn't have done that I, I you know I moved I moved some of that energy out of my body I'm thinking about it now and I realize I shouldn't have done that or I realize a different way of doing it mm -hmm. um so I think that I think that one we've got to recognize that uh we give up that control and we we don't know the administrator doesn't have that magic wand uh and and we don't know what necessarily happens but i certainly hope that there's communication back uh at the right time yeah uh between the admin and the teacher between admin and me the teacher to say this is what happened this is what i did you know this is this is how i'm supporting both you and the student in the situation mm -hmm. and so i really love that you brought up that support and when i've worked with administrators and educators on this, a lot of times it's phrased as kind of what you said, where it's not so much that the teacher um, is giving that up, but that they don't have one, one administrator used it as I have 20 minute chunks in my day that I can individually meet with kids that the classroom teacher just doesn't have in their schedule. Mm -hmm. And so sometimes it's also I am looking for support for this student and myself into how to handle this and how to sort of talk about the behavior and they have those chunks of time and, and, and the space to do that. So. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I think we want, we want to be really sparing with this idea that sending a student out of a classroom, that should never be our go-to and it probably shouldn't be our plan B or our plan C. Uh, sometimes it can be a plan D and there are some situations, especially if there are safety concerns or if they're big, big disruptions. And we just need to do something to, to, to get out of that situation. Um, you know, it's not like we're saying that every, no matter what, all the time, all students should be in the classroom. We're going to give all teachers tourniquets just in case there's lots of blood loss and whatever. We don't really want that. Um, but we got to realize that in, you know, it can be really, and I don't think we recognize this, it can be really embarrassing to be sent out of the classroom and sometimes we're sort of stuck, like we're putting our armor on and being like, oh, I'm tough and da, 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 da. But, you know, I, I will, um, full disclosure, I got kicked out of class a lot. Uh, <laughs> really? In elementary school, I got, I got written up a fair amount in middle school, high school. I think I've turned it around a little bit more. Um, but yeah, it's really embarrassing in yeah. front of in front of all your peers. And I think it can be doubly embarrassing when you've kind of lost control of your emotions and you're mm -hmm. not really in charge and then you do something that you regret a little bit and right in the heat of the moment it's like how do we give students the opportunity to learn from that to save face a little bit 
and you know recognize um, we're all learning with it. How can we how can we co-regulate instead of saying like you cannot be part of our community right now? Mm-hmm. What are the ways that we can uh, help make it an instructional um, conversation and instructional interaction as opposed to like a you're out of here interaction? I'm not dealing with you because it's usually not a safety issue. Right. And in our best, you know, in our best instruction, we can, students can figure out like, well, okay, it would be better not to, not to attend to or respond to that student when they're really in kind of a crisis mode. And the best thing we can do is give them a little bit of space. Um, we can do that within the classroom as well. And sometimes it can be a little bit harder, but we've got strategies to be able to do it. Thanks, Kent. We love that. So let's clarify a little bit what we're talking about as we move into this conversation. So as we keep going, when we talk about consequences, we're really going to be specifically focused on like the discipline procedures and policies within schools. Mm -hmm. So Kent, tell us, how does the idea of consequences really fit in PBIS implementation? Like, What's the purpose and are there consequences in PBIS? There sure are consequences in PBIS, <laughs> and there sure are adult responses. I think the one thing that we have to recognize, and I mean, unfortunately, removing students from the environment has been a practice that has been obviously around since, since we've had classrooms. We've been kicking people out of classrooms, which is, uh, uh, I'm not trying to normalize it or say it's all right. It's uh, only something that is, it is sometimes needed. But what we really want to be thinking about in PBIS systems is, um, you know, one of my mentors, George Sagai, calls an instructional approach to discipline. Mm. If all we do is remove a student from the situation, that is us fixing it, fixing the problem in a very blunt way. It's Mm. not a very useful tool for it. Uh, And if we have to remove a student from the classroom, we um, one of my favorite Uh, ways of thinking on is that is not the end of the interaction. That is the beginning of it. Because uh, if we've removed a student from the classroom, the only thing that we have taught them is that if they do that thing, then they get to leave class. And that's about it, right? Right. There are plenty of ways to signal that what somebody has done is not okay and interferes with the learning community that we have that don't involve removing them. And so- you know, usually when we think about it, like there is a skill that is missing or a skill that wasn't cued or uh, 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 something that students need to practice their own way of pulling it off. And so if all we do is we as the adult take them out of the situation, they're absolutely not going to learn that skill. Like we are not doing them a service and we're probably not doing their peers a service either. And so if there's a removal, um, and we really have to think about, okay, well, what, what was the skill that they should have been doing in the situation? How can we change the environment a little bit so it's easier to do things the right way and a little bit more challenging to do things the way we don't want? Uh, but how do we get that? How do we get that uh, instruction happening as opposed to um, just removing and that being our only response? Mm-hmm. Love that. I'm um, I'm thinking too about well, I'm thinking about a lot of things, but uh, Danielle and I, when we were talking about this, she said, you know, it's it's important for us to think about how when you, like you were saying, when you send a student out of the office, that's the beginning of 
of what's about to happen. That's the beginning of the consequence, that the referral itself is not the consequence to the behavior, that there oh, yeah. is something else that will happen. I'm also very curious, Kent, when you were talking about um, how often behavior is communication, right? We talk about that a lot and uh, that it's possible that when a student does something that we don't want to happen in our classrooms, that it's actually them looking for something else, right? And mm -hmm. I'm curious when you say that you went to the office a lot, what was your motivation? What were you looking for that would have been helpful instead of going to the office so many times? <laughs> Oh, I had a hard time sitting still and being quiet and not talking. Could you believe uh -huh. it? <laughs> uh -huh. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. And so if given the opportunity to blurt out a joke at the wrong time, mm. that was utterly hilarious, at least to me, um, <laughs> and resulted in me getting, usually I was sent out of the hallway. I wasn't usually. Yeah, just to the hall. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, but the hallway is kind of an interesting place to hang out, you know. And this, this There's stuff lots happening there. Yeah, yeah, yeah buzz like, going on in the hallway. Yeah, it's yeah. cool. So yeah. you know, it was like semi embarrassing to get sent out, but like, you know, was it? Sometimes jokes were good. Like that was pretty funny <laughs> stuff. So I'm, uh, you know, I think mm -hmm. about that. So I, I think um, there is this story, and I don't know if it's entirely true, but uh, you might know the actor and comedian Jim Carrey. Mm -hmm. Oh yeah. Uh, and so very, very active, probably wouldn't, you know, I will say maybe me personally, probably would not enjoy being his middle school teacher. <laughs> um, yeah. He was yeah. very off task, very yeah. uh, loud, very disruptive all the time. And my yeah. understanding is, and I don't know where I heard this, but basically uh, one of his teachers made a deal with him and said, look, if you can sit all the way through class I will give you three minutes of stand-up comedy time. No way. You have, it has to be appropriate. Right. And, uh, you know, so, so there, were, there, was a, there were the censors involved, but <laughs> that he was willing to sit through, you know, uh, 55 minutes or, or if it was a block period, you know, and uh -huh. uh, just under an hour and a half so that he could get that payoff at the end. And because otherwise it was like instantaneous disruption and being silly all the time. and goofy all the time. So that so uh you know the his teacher said, I will take, I will take that three minutes because I'm gonna have, you know, uh, almost an hour and a half, what 87 minutes of uninterrupted instruction. Mm -hmm. But that was, you know, that was him wanting him wanting interactions with his peers. Uh -huh wanting a sense of belonging and he had this skill, you know? And so I think, uh, you know, I, I, end, I ended up doing okay, I guess. But yeah, I think the idea that consequences are related to our response to the behavior that we see, um, mm -hmm. just in the same way that an acknowledgement is our is a response to behavior that we see, um, so is the consequence. So um, within that, so we're talking, as we make our way through this framework of PBIS, uh, we reference quite a bit the tiered fidelity inventory, right? And mm -hmm. within that, um, it defines two things related to our the discipline um, policies and procedures in our schools. So um, one of those is, of course, the procedure. So like your referral process, how do you handle a behavior when something comes up? Who handles that behavior? Is it something that you do in the classroom? Is it something that you send out of the classroom? Um, and then what are your what are the list of ways that you can respond? So you've got your procedures and you've also got the the behaviors that you define. Um, that you agree as a school 
are not appropriate for certain settings, right? Mm -hmm. So we'll talk first about that procedure part, and then we'll move into the definitions. So the procedure, it tells us we have to document our process. Why do we need to do that? What is the purpose of, um, of documenting that procedural part of things? And then how does that how can you then go through that documented sort of rigid procedure and interpret it for your own classroom setting or the playground or whatever? Like, how does that translate then to practice? Mm -hmm. You know, I was just walking um, uh, outside of my office, our office, well, at least two mm -hmm. of our offices. Yeah. And uh, I saw this, uh, the emergency procedures uh, posters are new and around and say what to do if there's an emergency. And I did catch myself for a second. I said, okay, what would I know? About, what would I do if there was this kind of emergency or that kind of emergency? Which door do I exit? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. But uh, the thing that I think about is... Um, you know, it's really easy in a it's really easy in a workshop to say, yes, these are the three things that I'll do. But mm -hmm. the really hard thing is to do it when there's an actual emergency. That's right. And yeah. I would consider, you know, a big disruption in the classroom to be a, a, a little emergency, not a, not necessarily a safety emergency, but we've got those. Um, it's really nice to have something agreed upon that I can follow as opposed to like winging it at these times when the stakes are really big, like for students' emotions, for students' connection to school and so on. And so I have something where I can say, okay, step one, I do this. Step two, I do that. Step three. And then of course, that's just for me. But then as we, as all the adults in the building can say like, we can all be consistent with our responses. That's really helpful. Um, yes, and one of the things that I really like, you know, we talk, we probably... Uh, many people are sort of thinking as they go through this, like, oh, my flowchart. So my flowchart says start here and then do this and then determine this and determine <laughs> yeah. that. And I really like, uh, you know, I think there are people, uh, there are people in the world who are flowchart people. And then there are people in the world who are wrong and should be flowchart people. That's, that's not really true. Uh, but I probably, I certainly have been uh, in the past guilty of over flowcharting things. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, mm -hmm. But one of the things that I really like is you can add, just because it is a, you know, a, a process, a procedure that we're all supposed to follow, you can actually add flexibility right in there. And so having yeah. the, here is the bank of things that you could do mm -hmm. to redirect behavior in the classroom before doing an office referral, I feel like that you know when when i started training on that that was a real game changer to be able mm. to say like yeah you know what i don't that's that that one thing that you said we're supposed to do that doesn't really jibe for me but here are four things that i could do that are all yeah. instructional and all work the same and all fit into that bank of possible responses and that helps us even if we do things a little differently, because Danielle, the way you respond might be different to the way Megan, you might respond, or we might do it differently, whether they're uh, uh, a, a student who is enrolled in one of my classes or as a student who is in my school, one of my students, but I don't see all the time uh, that there's a process I can follow and that the students also know what that process is going to be, I think is, yeah. I think is really, really key. I agree. I do too. And then what you said about consistency, I think is so important, especially in our middle and high schools where oh, students yeah. have eight plus teachers or adults yeah. they might interact with. And if 
They know, oh, Miss Triplett allows hats, but Miss Cave does not. Or there's these, you know, discrepancies. It's confusing and inconsistent. And kids are real savvy to that. So I think we can do a lot. Oh, yeah. We do what's best for kids by creating consistent environments and how we respond to behavior. So let's move in and talk more about how we define behavior in schools, because we've been yeah. looking at that, that part of the TFI. So, and even the way we've talked about these behaviors, I know being part of the, the training team for Swiss, let's say, you know, we used to say problem behavior. And this year we've taken the word problem out. We're now just saying behavior, like nice. more neutral language. And um, so let's talk more about um, this conversation about consequence and how we define those behaviors. So could you tell us about the importance of actually defining the behaviors, why we do it? and how defining behavior really relates to equity in education. Oh, totally. Great. Yeah, I think so much of this idea of, you know, I don't I, I don't know if I could define what disruption is, but I I know it when I know I see it when I see it. Totally. Yeah, not very helpful yeah. for us. Um mm. and I think that, you know, we as humans are kind of cued that when we see behavior that we don't expect, you know, that's surprising to us, it is a very common knee-jerk reaction for us to define that as wrong, right? Mm -hmm. That is not the way I'm supposed to do stuff. And we got to be really, really careful about that. I was just in uh, Japan, actually, for the APBS um, Asia Pacific Conference, which is a really cool thing. I talk about that some other time. But, <laughs> you know, you hop into, you hop into another culture uh, and it's really easy to go, oh my gosh, what is it they're doing? And how are they queuing up? And they've got these, they got these people who help in the subway, like are wearing white gloves and they push you onto your car because it would be inappropriate to um, you know, to to push your way on, but you need to get onto the car. So there's all these like different things about it. And I I think a lot of times our students are walking in to a different culture that we're trying to create. We're trying to engineer this social culture in our classroom. And what that means is that we've got implicit ideas of what is okay and what's not okay. Uh, but a common mistake we make is to assume that those are universal. Mm. And really, those, those really come from how we grew up uh, our experiences with family members, our experiences with our friends, and what we say is like, what's okay and what's not okay. And uh, the amount of volume that you have, uh, it, that, that you can tolerate, um, you know, sometimes I, I know some teachers who are like, if it's not loud and there's all sorts of stuff going on, then I don't think learning's happening. Mm. And then there are other ones that is like, I better see, I better hear a pin drop because otherwise, you know, uh, something's wrong. Yeah. And and so I, it's not such a terrible thing to have these different tolerances. I think the biggest challenge is to be unthoughtful uh, or naive or not purposeful about how we define it and describe it for our students and not make those assumptions that students know what's expected of them and what is respectful and what is not respectful just, you know, upon walking into the classroom. Yeah. So teaching them like this is what I think what I think is OK in our classroom. And um, if you're having a side conversation, I don't mind it. But then maybe you go into another classroom and you have a side conversation and they do mind. So you have to define that. Is that what you're saying? 
Yeah, well, I mean, not only that, like it gets even more complicated because um, in almost all classrooms, there are sometimes where side conversations are expected and right. someone's not all right, right? So like when mm. you're taking a test, side conversation, probably not all right, unless yeah. it's a group test. Mm -hmm. But uh, you can't say don't have side conversations because then when you do group work, it's like, well, okay, we're supposed to break the, the whole rule. thing is a side conversation. Not yeah, fine, exactly. right? So being able to define that what we ask of students varies based on the context and the situation yeah. is yeah. that's a game changer. And it's really mm -hmm. important for us to, to do that and, and be really clear. And, and when we see behavior that is different from what we expect, we really got to catch ourselves in the moment and say, hang on, before I send a student to the office, before I issue a consequence, before I, you know, publicly redirect a student, uh, let me think, is it really wrong or is it just unfamiliar to me, but maybe it's a variation on okay that I haven't seen before or that I, that, you know, that was not okay me growing up in my classroom, uh, go in my classrooms when I was in school or in my home or so on. Yeah, I, um, I'm thinking right now about these two items, the procedure and the definitions and how these are both documented or they should be documented as part of your PBIS implementation. And mm -hmm. for if we go back to this idea that there are no consequences in PBIS, it could just be that that particular um, idea stems from not being aware of the documented or even having the documentation available to everyone to say, no, this is what we do. Like there are consequences and this is how it works in our mm -hmm. school. So looking for those would be uh, one way to help inform everyone. Um, and then how you how you communicate that with your students, it sounds like is really critical too to, um, to implementing the framework equitably. Oh, sure. Yeah, and I think um, about like I, I think there's a couple little bits of that to to unpack. And one of them is if you're saying like I'm going to a school that's implementing PBIS and I don't see like students waiting outside the principal's office, or I don't see, you know, people being clipped down on a clip chart, or I don't see the um, you know, uh uh class reward app up on the screen and students getting dinged, you know, that's probably by design, that's probably a good thing. Uh, I think sometimes when people say there are no consequences, they're really thinking about, I saw something and the sort of divine retribution part of my brain cued in. And I said, you know what, mm -hmm. like uh, uh, th this person needs to pay for what they yeah. did. Punishment, um, right? And yeah. And, you know, I mean, that is that is definitely kind of, unfortunately, some of our go-tos that we have when we, we see something we don't like. But we got to think like the main thing that I think about with uh, with these responses or punishment is I want to see less of it down the road. And mm -hmm. so kicking a student out, yelling at a student, uh, humiliating them, you know, uh, I can think of many situations where that's actually going to make things worse rather than better. And I know somebody can think, oh, that one time, you know, when my uh, when, when <laughs> I got called out by the teacher and I was ne never do that again. Yeah. You know, those are those are a little bit more few and far between. I mm -hmm. think I think there are more kids who were like, um, I saw a kid get a demerit. Somebody dinged them on the screen, you know, on our class reward screen. And now 
I can't even pay attention to instruction because I'm so freaked out about them dinging a point from me in the system. And so it seems like compliance and it Mm -hmm. seems like students are doing well, but it is mostly just being quietly afraid that you're going to get busted next. That's right. That's right. I would have very much been that student. (laughs) 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 Totally. Totally. And one of the worst things we can do is, is, um, contribute to labeling, you know, and so I'll, I'll, I'll say one thing I've got, um, you know, it's not uncommon when I, uh, I'll ask, ask my kids about school and how things are going in their class. I have two middle schoolers, you know, and, and it, I really pay attention if somebody says, oh yeah, this kid is a troublemaker. Yeah. And I say, well, what, what, what does that mean? How did you like, did I teach that ever? And it sure seems like, and I, and I, I don't want to lay uh, blame or something like that, but it sort of sounds like something that he heard an adult say, you know, bullying right. a kid and that troublemaker effect when we're kind of uh, that that being labeled as a troublemaker is actually way more of a risk factor than any other um, identities that a, a student can have. And unfortunately, a lot of times uh, we think of um, BIPOC students as more likely to be labeled troublemakers. So then there's this double whammy mm-hmm. connected to it. But it's sort of like, well, gosh, did 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 they hear this troublemaker word because they're seeing the kid getting reprimanded in class and now it's just leading to this coercive cycle and it's just happening over and over again um whereas you know a little bit of thoughtfulness about like okay could i like cut down on the retribution if i was you know if the payoff was that they would actually do better and have the skills that they need not to uh uh respond in a dysregulated way when they can, you know, catch themselves and we can coach them through that and co-regulate with them. Great points, Kent. That's a great segue to our next question. So we have a lot of data and we know a lot about the way schools implement their consequences because they document them with referrals. And Mm -hmm. so when we study the patterns in those data, we do see that our students of color, students with IEP, students living in poverty are the ones that are disproportionately often impacted by our discipline systems. So talk to us about what you advice you have for educators related to using some of that discipline data to guide their efforts in schools mm. and how they might address equity issues that they see in their data. You know, we couldn't have you on here talking about consequences without asking you specifically about equity. Yeah, we had to ask you. <laughs> I wouldn't come on if you didn't ask me. <laughs> <laughs> I think I've got two bits of advice is number one is don't be afraid to look at your data and see what patterns are there. Uh, I think a lot of times and our research has sort of shown that that just telling people that they have discipline inequities, I think some of us who are who are kind of equity, you know, trend to centering equity in the work are like, okay, that is the mobilizing call for making this happen. Uh, But really in um in reality more people are like oh my gosh who who saw this report and can i delete it before anybody else sees it and and yeah. maybe you know can i put a piece of black electrical tape over the equity report on my discipline mm-hmm. dashboard so i don't even look at it mm-hmm. uh, so so number 1 is just you know if it's uncomfortable for you to see data showing inequities you know is it the discomfort of seeing it or is it the discomfort that we're actually being inequitable 
And if that's the case, and that ought to be the case, then like, okay, well, let's take make changes so our data don't look like that instead of just not opening up that report. Mm -hmm. But then the other thing I think of is, is uh, we are really caught in this either or uh, thinking uh, in the world of equity and school discipline. You're either you're either a good person or a bad person. You're either racist or you're not a racist or, or something like that. Um, when really we look at it, we can use you know features like the Swiss drill down reports to look and be able to say, not just like, do we see inequities, but where and when and why. And it can be really helpful for us to look at our data and use drill down and use some of those filters and say, okay, uh, it, it seems really, really clear that it is disruption in the hallways where we see most of the inequities based on uh, race or ethnicity. And so let's talk about, well, how are we defining that? And what does that look like for us as adults responding to that need for, you know, the need for a safe uh, and, uh, you know, predictable and positive hallway? How do we how do we do it and how are our definitions actually getting in the way of that or how might we need to reteach or, or think about uh, intervening a little bit differently? And I don't view that as shying away from it. I view it as leaning in and really saying, like, let's put on our thinking caps and and uh, address it using some of our our written discipline policies and our definitions and how we interact with students. And are we first coming in? as a you know mall security guard or are we coming in relationally and being like hey you know you probably know that what you're doing is not all right can i can i ask you to fix that mm-hmm. um is a very different thing than like no talking in hallways no loitering right move on kids you know <laughs> right well, it goes right. back to what you said earlier about also being intentional about you know making connections with kids and those relationship building things and Right, mm-hmm. as we're thinking of you the bet. motivation or why they might be doing that, and also Absolutely. not assuming that that our definition is a shared definition um, school wide. That um, that sometimes the way I don't. What did you say? Something about um, don't make assumptions that our experiences are universal or our definitions mm-hmm. are universal. Oh, totally. So I guess where we're at at our in our conversation is first of all. I think we've covered the fact that consequences are in fact a part of PBIS implementation. Mm-hmm. So what would you what would you suggest to someone listening right now who either has this idea in their mind that I'm at a school where I don't see these consequences as part of our PBIS implementation. Nobody's no, not, none of this is happening in my school. Um or they at least have heard it through their hallways. And what would you say to them? What do you recommend that they do? Um as some first steps to addressing it. You know, the first thing I think of is, and you had mentioned this before, Megan, is ask, right? So ask the administrator. If you say like, I send this kid away and then nothing happens and they come back, get like, be curious about that. Just like we expect with student behavior is like, let's, well, let's really think about my behavior and then the administrator's behavior and say, hey, you know, can I get some follow-up on what happened afterwards. And and that's one of the things that we're really trying with some of our technology is being able to look up the referrals you uh, submitted and say, oh, I can actually look it up on my own and see that this was the administrator action that happened. Mm -hmm. I can ask and see. 
If I'm an administrator, I want to be really clear about uh, with uh, with my teachers about what it is that I did, what mm-hmm. came in, what happened. I also want to, I don't want to shy away from the idea of saying like, there might be some referrals, some office referrals that are not a- appropriate. And mm-hmm. I don't just want to send the student back and say that teacher's a terrible teacher <laughs> and uh, they shouldn't have done that. And that was really biased and like they need to cool down um, without actually telling the teacher. That's like that's like doing to the teacher exactly what the teacher is asking, yeah. is mm-hmm. is concerned about from the administrator. Yeah. So just open the opening those lines of communication, being able to say, hey, this is what happened. This is what the uh, student came in and, and I saw that they were really agitated and we talked about three things they're going to do differently instead and a choice of those. Here's the language that I used. Um, so uh, let's let's work on that together. And I've coached the student to try that, too. Uh, I think that those are those are the things that are really going to make a difference. And we really appreciate you taking the time, especially to join us for twice, two times talking about um, how we how we as adults respond to behaviors in schools, both with acknowledgements as well as with consequences, and just really kind of ta- taking the time to talk through what does this look like in practice, um, that we don't have to be scared to talk about it um, and acknowledge the places where we could do better um, and mm-hmm. to just constantly look for um, how we can improve our practices that to benefit all of the people within our school-wide community. So we really appreciate it. Thanks for taking the time, man. I really appreciated the conversation. I'm really happy <laughs> to be able to contribute and hopefully somebody listening actually hears and says, oh yeah, we could do something yeah. from yeah. this from this real concern I've got. Here's actually something constructive that we can do about it to make our schools safer, more positive, more predictable and more equitable. And talking about it is one of those ways. We Absolutely. agree. Thanks so much. Thanks, Kent.